I'm Mrs. Spurlock, born Julie twice in a small town of Hungary called Nagyrosvágy. One day, two uh, gendarmes comes in, and I'm sitting in the backyard, and one of them tells me, I ripped my pants, you saw it. I said, okay. I took a needle and thread, I saw his pants, into his underpants. So my mother was begging it, please, you are risking your life. I just didn't believe it. You're listening to Those Who Were There, Voices from the Holocaust, a podcast that draws on recorded interviews from Yale University's Fortunoff Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies. I'm Eleanor Risa. Judith Perlocki grew up in a well-to-do religious family. She attended public schools until she was 12, then a private high school. After Judith graduated, her mother sent her to a tutor to learn how to sew. Her mother explained that if she could afford to buy nice clothes, she should be able to judge the quality of the sewing. And she wanted Judith to have a useful skill because you never know what life brings. In 1944, when Judith was 19, she and her six younger siblings, her mother and father, and other relatives were deported to the Auschwitz concentration camp. It is now March 8, 1993, and Judith Perlocki is being interviewed by Joni Sue Blinderman at the offices of the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York City. Judith is wearing a broad-shouldered blue jacket with a colorful striped scarf tied at the neck. Set off against a black backdrop, Judith's crown of curly silver hair frames her round face. Judith picks up the story with their arrival by cattle car to Auschwitz after a grueling multi-day journey. Uh, they opened the doors and we saw uh, prisoners. They had striped uniform and a striped cap on it. And they were whispering, uh, let the children go. Let your children go in Jewish. We didn't understand it. Why some people did, some people, uh, some mothers would not let their children go, that's for sure. When I get off the train, I was holding my little sister's uh, uh, hand, one of the youngest sister's hand. And it, they separated the men immediately from the women. This way, that way. Uh, when I looked young and my, uh, I was holding a little, my little sister's hand. German asked me, Frau or the Mädchen? Are you a married woman or are you a girl? And I said, Frau, because I had a little kid in my hand. He shoved me to my mother's side where my mother was. <clears throat> Meanwhile, my two youngest sister was put on the other line. So my mother pushed me out. She said, you go there and take care of your two sisters, and don't forget, obey the Sabbath day. That was the last thing I heard from my mother. So uh, uh, I went, I sneaked back 
to my other two sisters. My mother grabbed the little one from me, my little sister, and I went on the other side to uh, my other two sisters. And at that point, we didn't know why they said that let the children go. Later on, we found out why. Because if you were a healthy young woman uh, and you had a child in your hand, you went in the crematorium line. If you didn't have no child, your life might be saved because you are strong enough to work. The only thing, uh, what they told us right away in the barracks, those people who were there long before us, um, if they want to tattoo you, go. Don't hide from tattooing. It might be uh, uh, you save your life. So when they called us out, uh, we went out to be tattooed. And my sister, uh, I am 1933, uh, 6933. Three. My youngest sister is 34, and the middle one is 35. Later on, I'm going to tell you the story how this number saved uh, my middle sister's life. A couple of days later, they supplied us with white kerchiefs on our head. We looked like nurses. So we stood in line, then they gave us the white kerchiefs, and he said, you are gonna go to work. And they started to march us to work where we didn't know anyway. Uh, we had to pass a gate where music was playing. Musicians was playing, and uh, on the door it says, Arbat macht Sleben süß, work makes uh, uh, the life sweet. And then we went into a very, very big warehouse. And right across the street was the big chimney. The gate to that chimney, the thing was a gate, but it was all covered with blankets. We could not see inside what's going inside. The only thing we started to hear is the prayers, a crying, screaming. When we went into that warehouse, that was right across from there, and uh, we smelled the smell, we heard the yelling, and they took us into that big warehouse. He said, you put everything uh, separately. You put the uh, eyeglasses, the shoes, the clothes, definitely jewelry and the money that's separate and you give it to us. Well, I was, <clears throat> Uh, getting all this uh, stuff together, I cut into one of the long rope, a button with a scissor, and I discovered they were all wedding bands, gold wedding bands. He must have been a jeweler who wanted to hide uh, his jewelry. He covered it as, uh, you know, a button on a, on a long dress. From then on, we started to look for the, the jewelry or the money and we didn't have no bathroom, we had a big latrine outside. We already had the brains to what, if we could get away with it, not to give it to the Germans, we threw it in the latrina. If anybody ever digs up the latrina, it's a lot of gold and diamonds are laying there. And money, definitely, because we use the money for toilet paper. How many women, were there only women working in the warehouse? Only women. Only women. Only women. The man was working in a, a the crematorium. crematorium. And yeah. how many women would be working a shift? Hundreds and hundreds. 
And because would there be suitcases and so on in there? Yes. Or had they, if they'd be closed up they suitcases? They were closed up suitcases. And they would be found food and they would be found all the kind of different things. So that's because we were not undernourished. The, um, the crematoria warehouse was in close proximity also to the gas chambers as well as the crematoria. It was all... The crematorium in the gas chamber was in one uh, unit. Okay. It was uh, top and bottom. They took the clothes from there to us to be uh, separated. And we, did you have a view of people being uh, marched into these areas? Oh, to marching, yes. Well, how did, what did you see? What was we there? saw a, a big transport, just like we came in, with a lot of people, they're going in the gate. Were Never the, saw them coming out. Were the men and women together? Men and women together. That time there were men and women together, old and young. Okay, but young children. And children, so. children by the thousands. Also, I forgot to tell you, in the crematorium, I found my little sister clothes, my uh, youngest one, and my aunt clothes. My sister's dress, I was hiding it for months. How I lost it, I still don't know. I did not take my aunt's, but I recognized my aunt's clothes and my youngest sister clothes. I had it with me, I was hiding it. We worked at night, and we passed the shift. It was coming in the morning. Because in the morning, the men came into the uh, crematorium to work inside of the crematorium. All of a sudden, one guy recognized us. He was from one of our nearby town from Hungary. And between the German soldiers and the dogs, he slipped us a note that find my two sisters. So happened, the two sisters of his was in that camp. So we saw them, and he said, we saw your brother going into work in a crematorium, and my sister Elizabeth, she was very, very daring. She took notes from the sisters to give it to the brother the next day when we passing them by. She managed it, she gave the notes. One day we went back to the camp, the two sisters are not there, so we asked, where are they? They said the black car stopped. <clears throat> the black car meant that when the crematorium wasn't too busy, then they chose right from the people right in the camp, and also women who were pregnant when they came in. What they didn't notice it, they were pregnant because they were in the early months, but they started to show later on, so they know they were pregnant, they took them out, or an uh, sale up at every tenth one. They took out and they bought in the crematorium. So we went in and we asked where it is that the black car stopped. It meant the black car going straight to the crematorium. So now how are you going to say it to the brother? My sister wrote to him uh, notes. We couldn't find your sisters. They went out to field work. They went here, they went there, went there. A couple of days later, he hands back a note to my sister. You could stop lying. I put them myself into the oven. We were going into work one day when an old man 
push the uh, blankets aside by the crematorium. And he was folding his clothes and he tied his shoes together. He thought he's gonna come back to find his shoes. And it stuck in my mind, it stuck in my other sister mind and the third sister mind. That scenery, none of us forget it. It was one Sunday when the Germans came for inspection, Kretze. The Kretze was a very bad outbreak of uh, pimples. It reaches like nobody's business. My sister Elizabeth was loaded with it. The whole body was loaded with the Kretze. The German came up and they wrote up her number. The next day, we know she's going up on the chimney. When they came, it says 9535, they called 9533. Her five looks like my three. So instead of five, they wrote up three, my number. They called for the call and they called me. So uh, I went outside and uh, right there where the cars were already waiting, I said, figure I don't have nothing to lose. I said, Herr Oberschaffurin, ich habe kein Kretze nicht. Herr Oberschaffurin, I don't have this. So he told me, halt ein Schnauze für Flucht der Jud. Shut up, you, uh, you bastard. I still don't have nothing to lose. I said, but I don't have any. He said, take off your rags. He didn't have to tell me twice. I took off my rags. And he was amazed because not a spot on my body. So he said, no, she doesn't. He said, Lovtrick, uh, run back. He didn't have to tell me twice. I ran back to the camp. At nighttime, my sisters returned from work with swollen eyes, of course, from crying because they figured I'm up on the chimney already. And that was uh, the second time I beat death because the first time when my mother pushed me, this is the second time I beat death. So we stayed in uh, Birkenau till the uh, fall time. When we went to uh, Bergen-Belsen, Bergen-Belsen was comparing to Auschwitz heaven. The treatment over there, it wasn't as harsh as in Birkenau. It was a lot, uh, lot more lenient. So it gave us a little bit of more hope. Now, you left, uh, or you were taken from Bergen-Belsen in December 44 by, by cattle car to Braunschweig? That was already in January 1945. Yeah. yeah, that you arrived in Braunschweig. How many of you were in this group that came out of Bergen-Belsen to Braunschweig? To Braunschweig, uh, from uh, around 600, we remained about two. 400 died. We, I mean, you couldn't... Uh, uh, endured that, that cold, that, 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 the mistreatment, everything else, that, that they were falling one after the other. And we weren't too sorry because the ration back came to us. Where is Braunschweig? Braunschweig is in Germany. We cleaned the streets, no clothes, no shoes, in the snow, no place uh, uh, to go any warm place because the only place we slept, it was a big barn, no covers, just straw. So the body heat from each other kept us warm. Outside of Braunschweig, Braunschweig was a very big salt mine. 
They transferred us to work in a salt mine, but the lift took us down. It wasn't just a salt mine. It was, they were manufacturing parts to airplanes. It was actually a factory underneath in that salt mine. Over there, uh, remarkable things happened. A German soldier, he wasn't an SS, he was a Wehrmacht. He had a Wehrmacht uniform on it. Uh, he spoke to me in uh, German. He found that I speak German. And my sister was so young, Lily. Every single day, he brought her, her sandwiches to eat. And acute, he was giving it to her on the side. And she he was telling me in German, don't worry, not too long. They're, they're coming in. The English are coming, the Americans are coming. He was giving me. So I felt, why is he telling me all these things? One day he came in, he said, before 12 o'clock, all of you go to the bathroom. Don't forget, go to the bathroom. So I listened to him. After all, he was bringing sandwiches to my sister. We all went to the bathroom. There was a big explosion in that factory. At that point, I knew he was a German spy. He was a spy, a German, but he was a spy. And uh, after that uh, explosion, we never saw him again. We came out from Braunschweig in uh, April. We were constantly on the, uh, on the go. So we were a long time, we were up on the train, down on the train, and that was uh, uh, the time when uh, we were on a big field, head to head, about 2,000 of us. And uh, machine guns in the middle, machine guns all around it. And I, we heard when a German officer said, I can't do it, these are 2,000 uh, innocent people. He must have a good idea already that he's getting close to the end of the war and they lost it because we saw a guy with a, a soldier with a motorcycle handling uh, uh, over some kind of papers to him. And he packed up his machine guns and he said, get up, back on the train. So they were taking us from one place to another. And finally we arrived to Denmark. They opened the doors, we saw blue uniforms, and also a German soldier came up on the train and he said in German, what's new? He asked the guy who was with us in the train, what's new? He said, nothing special. We lost the war and Hitler is dead. Well, after the things, you don't think we believed him. Because we figured it's one of their uh, uh, cute tricks. And then came up all these uh, uniformed men with uh, Red Cross uniform. You would see the lice walking up and down on the blue uniforms because we are full of lice. They took us to a big, big, it looked like or a warehouse or a barn or something where tables were set with spoon forks and knives and plates. But we didn't see None of this for, for a year. And they served us something to eat. With coffee, with drinks and everything else. Now, included me, we're putting all the food into the underneath our clothes for tomorrow. Because we still don't believe they are, we are free. 
they figured maybe it's one of their tricks also. And the same night, they took us into Sweden by boats to Landskrona and officially came to on the radio that Hitler is dead, the war is over. We arrived in Sweden, what it's uh, amazingly, in one uh, procedure that delized us. Then they took us to a warehouse where it was mostly American donated clothes. Picture me weighing 68 pounds, and I choose a very tight fitted black skirt with a scallop thread blouse on it, a beret on my head, and a heel this high. And my feet are full of uh, false brights. I couldn't even walk in them. But to me, uh, that was so beautiful, I mean, after all. So we stayed there till uh, 46. And I started to work in a factory, the coat factory in Uppsala. And night time I went to the university and started to study back. And I learned the language very fast. So it started, uh, life started to be back normal in Sweden. I could go on and on and on and tell you stories, but still I think about it, still I, some of them, I can't believe it, if it was possible to live through. Um, if there's anything um, that you'd like to say before we complete the interview, any last comments? Or... Well, the interview I would like to, uh, Remind the people, please don't forget it. Don't let us be forgotten. Because it was there, and anybody who tries ever to say it wasn't there cannot face the world, can absolutely not face nobody. Because it was there, it happened. Very unfortunately, it happened. I was there, I have a number on my arm. I, that my youth was taken away. My, my mother and my sisters were taken away. It happened, it was there. So don't let anybody to defy that. Believe us and thank you. Thank you very, very much. In 1948, Judith and her sister Elizabeth immigrated to the United States. Their sister Lily went to Israel. Judith settled in Brooklyn where she met and married Thomas Perlocki. They later moved to New Jersey where they raised two children. Judith worked as a seamstress at a local clothing store and Thomas commuted to Manhattan to wait tables at a restaurant across the street from the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. In 1991, Judith traveled with her sisters and her son Lawrence to Auschwitz and Hungary. They were very anxious to touch the fence at Auschwitz, Lawrence recalled, the one that was electrified when they were imprisoned there. We also took a walk through the barracks, and they told stories about what it was like. In later years, Lawrence often went with his mother to speak at schools about her experiences during the war. 
We went a half a dozen times a year for 15 years, Lawrence recalled. My mother's favorite school was Eastside High in Patterson, New Jersey, because the kids, who were mostly black and Hispanic, were of course subject to racism themselves. Lawrence said that the phrase his mother always repeated at their school talks was, if you fill your heart with love, then there's no room for hatred. Judith Perlocki died on May 7, 2010. She was 84 and was survived by two children and four grandchildren. To learn more about Judith Perlocki, please visit our companion website at thosewhowerethere.org. It includes episode notes, a full transcript, and archival photographs. That's where you can also find our previous episodes as well as background information on the Fortune Off Video Archive and the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Those Who Were There is a production of the Fortune Off Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies, which is housed at the Yale University Library's Manuscripts and Archives Department in New Haven, Connecticut. This second season is a co-production with the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust, New York's contribution to the global responsibility to never forget. The museum is committed to the crucial mission of educating diverse visitors about Jewish life before, during, and after the Holocaust. This podcast is produced by Nahani Rouse, Eric Marcus, the Fortune Off Archives director Stephen Naren, and Trevor Walsh, collections project manager at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. Thank you to audio engineer John Gordon. Thanks as well to Christy Bailey Tomachek, Joanna Aruda, Noah Guto Ellis, and Inga Detaya for their assistance. And thank you to Sam Cassow for historical oversight, and to photo editor Michael Green, genealogist Michael Leclerc, and our social media producers, including Christiana Pena, Nick Porter, and Sarah Barber. Leova Gerbin composed our theme music. Thank you as well to Judith Perlocki's children, Lawrence and Diane, for providing archival photographs and background information. Special thanks to the Fortunoff family and other donors to the archive for their financial support. I'm Eleanor Risa. Thank you for listening. <music>